Father, we find ourselves swirling in a world, world of lies, a sea of lies. So we come here this morning thirsty, hungry for truth. We believe your, your word is that, that you are truth. So we pray that you would speak truth to us this morning as we consider your word. And we pray, I pray that you would somehow speak through me this morning. We've asked these things in Christ's name. Amen. Is, uh, is the mic, does it, is it a little off or do I need to do anything? It's just in my head. It's the buzzing in my head. Okay, if it sounds good, then we're, then we're good. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we said that we tend to view Jesus like just another spiritual guru. Like if, if you're looking for a spiritual teacher, you might Google spiritual guide and up pops Jesus, top result, most five-star reviews. And you got, you got Muhammad there, you've got Buddha, you've got uh, maybe Socrates is there, maybe some contemporaries like Oprah and Chopra. Um, but Jesus is just like one of a few options of spiritual guides that you can take, and he might guide your life well. He's a good choice. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that Christ is the King, and that Jesus, when he walked among us, it was God among us. It was the Word made flesh. And John uses that term at the beginning of his Gospel, The Word became flesh, and the Word is Logos. It has this huge Hebrew background, the word Logos, the Word. And it also has a big Greek background. And what the, just just focusing on the Greek background for a second. The Greeks believed that the bones of the universe, the bones of creation, were the Logos. It was like what held everything together, just like the bones hold your body and give it structure and shape that the universe, creation, had bones, and the bones were the logos. It was an abstract thing. And what John is saying is, yes, there is a logos that holds, that gives shape to creation, and it's Christ. It's a person. It's not a principle. It's not a force. It's a person. He's the glue of creation. As Paul says, all things live and move and have their being in Him. You can't ignore Christ without it impacting your relationship with reality, with creation. You can't ignore Him. When I was a teenager, I can remember learning uh, that there is, you know, there's nature, there's the world that we see, and then there's the supernatural world, the world that's in the word super, like beyond. It's the world that's beyond nature. And that's helpful to an extent, that way of understanding it. But here's what that produces. You can tend to think of like nature as like box number one, little compartment. And on top of that is the supernatural realm. And they're like two independent boxes. And, and, and when you think of it that way, the, the purpose of Jesus in this life is to get us from box one up to heaven, box number two. And, and you could kind of, you could live, you, you could, uh, you don't have to have Jesus to get along in box number one in the natural world. He's really just a little booster up to box number two, the supernatural world. And that's about it. And a lot of times Jesus is presented that way, but that's not it at all. These two, there, there are no two boxes. Christians historically have understand the natural and the supernatural world to be tied together that the natural is tied to the supernatural, and that everything we see, 
Everything that we see outside, inside, it's all somehow tied mysteriously to Christ. It's rooted in Christ. Hans uh, Borsma, a theologian, says you could think of Christ as the anchor of all creation. It's all rooted in him. This is biblical language. It's all rooted in Christ. And so to live in Christ is to integrate and situate yourself into the world as it really is. And to live outside of Christ is to live in, in, a, in sort of a state of, of a delusion, right? It's, it, it's not the way it is. It's not living in step with reality. And here's the thing. Let, let me say this too. Another way to think about this that folks have said is life is sacramental. The world is, is, is sacramental. Um, think about the sacraments the bread and the wine and the water, they point to Christ, his body broken, his blood poured out. There's signs that point to realities about Christ. The water is a sign that points to the Spirit's cleansing of us from sin. There's signs. Well, everything that you see out there is a sacrament. It's a sign that is tied to Christ. It speaks of who Christ is. I think it was Manley Hopkins that said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. That's the idea, all of it. And so here's the thing. If you run from Christ, you're running from reality. And sooner or later, it will catch up with you. You'll get yourself in a bind. And this is why C.S. Lewis, when he was an atheist on the run from Christ, he said this. He he says, um, you know, when I was an atheist, I was living like many atheists in a whirlwind of contradictions. I maintain that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing, and I was equally angry with him for creating a world. It's just a little bundle of contradictions, and that's what happens. You resist Christ, and you enter into a whirlwind of contradictions. You become an irony. You become an oddity. And here's the thing. One of the peculiar offshoots of this is in your refusal to acknowledge Christ, you can actually begin to speak truths about Christ. It's an irony. And the gospel writers pick, it, pick up on it that those who are opposed to Christ speak truths of Christ. We've seen it already in John's gospel, but here we see it again this morning in Caiaphas's prophecy. That's the title of the sermon. Caiaphas becomes, because he's living in a world at which Christ is the center, he speaks against Christ, but he actually ends up being an unwitting prophet of Christ. We're going to see that today. We're going to see how the death of Christ both attracts, both, I'm sorry, both atones and attracts. So that's, those are the two points. The death of Christ atones and attracts. This is Caiaphas's prophecy. That's what he says um, unwittingly. But before we get there, we got a little bit of a lead up. So let's just jump right in. Now remember, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead as his seventh and final sign, the greatest sign. A man dead in a tomb for four days has been called out of the tomb by Christ. He just says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. Remember we said the reason he specifies Lazarus is because if he did not say Lazarus, then dead people within earshot would be coming out of their tombs everywhere. Right? That's the power of, of the word of Christ. So Lazarus comes out. Verse 45 of of our passage this morning. And many of the Jews, the Jews that were just weeping with Mary and Martha, 
believed in him. And their weeping is turned to rejoicing and joyous wonder at what they have just witnessed. And then verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now you read that, you think, oh, they must have been up to no good going to tell the, 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 you know, tell the teacher Jesus got into trouble. He did say he raised a man from the dead. Um, but actually, it may not be b- bad motivation. Um, it, it, maybe they're just going to report to the authorities this incredible thing that's happened, this unprecedented thing that has happened. But look at verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, the council that they have gathered is, is, a, is a, uh, an assembly of the chief priests, the high priests, the Pharisees were on this council. It's a ruling council that handles... Remember, uh, the Jews are under Roman occupation, but the Romans have given them some freeway, leadway. And the council uh, handles internal affairs, Jewish affairs. They, they're, they're kind of the court. They're the law. They're, they're, they're even the, 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 the uh, prison system, the, the, the justice system. And so the council gathers together to deal with this. And here's the thing. They recognize that he's doing these signs. They're not denying it. And that's, that's one of the, the funny things about all this. And we see this in the book of Acts as well. The authorities opposed to Christ don't deny his works, his signs. They don't deny the resurrection even. They, 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 blame, they say it's a work of Satan or you know, something it's, it's empowered by demons. That's the explanation. But they don't deny that these things actually happened. And so here's the thing. I mean, they're basically saying he's doing these signs. He's qualified. He's qualified to be who he says he is. What do we do? That's what they say. What are we to do? And, and John, has, John has already told them what to do. John, the gospel writer. Remember what he said, John chapter 20? I've recorded these signs so that you may believe in the one whom, he, whom God has sent, Jesus, and have eternal life. That's the answer. What are we to do? You see the signs. The response is belief. But that's not what they do. They say, let's, they say basically, let's kill him. Let's put him to death. Look, look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place, which is a reference to the temple, most likely. They'll take away our place, our temple, and our nation. Now, here's the thing. What they're seeing is if, if this Jesus creates a stir, a mass following, which it's, it, he's beginning to do. Rome is going to see that as a threat, and they are going to clamp down on us. And, and it looks like they're being like good shepherds of the people. Like, what, they're, he's going to take away their, our nation and our temple. But John makes the point here. He's, he's, he's making emphatic the our place. They're saying it, he's going to take away our temple. Is it their temple? It's God's temple. He's going to take away our nation. Is it their nation? No, they're just stewards, steward leaders, under shepherds of God the Father. It's God's nation, the people of Israel. And so what looks like concern for the people is actually a cloaked, uh, is just a cloak for what underneath is a desire to preserve their own power. 
They're not shepherds of the people. They're actually wolves that are out to kill the good shepherd, Christ. Okay, all of that is lead up to the prophecy of Caiaphas. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, and by the way, high priest, um, he is, he's the high priest. He was, he was the one man that could go enter the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. And on one day a year, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, he would sacrifice, make a sacrifice on, on behalf, for, for, the, for the people. He also, as high priest, spoke for the people. Had almost had a, a bit of a prophetic role as high priest, speaking for the people. So let's see what he says. He says, you know nothing at all to the council. Idiots! <laughs> no nothings! It's, it's actually pretty strong language he uses. No nothings. No, verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas is like, look, answer is plain and simple. This is what we do. We've got to kill this guy. We've got to kill this guy. Christ recognizes, Caiaphas says, a threat to our nation, to our temple. And it's better that one man die than that the whole nation. It's good old utilitarian ethics, right? The greatest good for the greatest number is what we're after. So if we can get rid of this guy and save the whole nation, perfect. Now, here's the funny thing, though. Caiaphas Actually, as he speaks, we realize he's the biggest know-nothing. He's the biggest idiot of the bunch. Because he doesn't even, in fact, you get into this, and it's like he, he, he doesn't realize that his office points to Christ. He's wanting to undermine his very office that he's so concerned to maintain that the one who formed the nation is Christ, the one he wants to get rid of, that Christ is the temple. The temple is just a shadow of, of Christ. And so in saying, let's get rid of him so we can save the nation, save our power, save the temple, he's actually missing the whole point. In fact, the irony is kind of dizzying to, to read because he, Caiaphas is actually speaking prophetically. He's speaking truths of God, and he's speaking truths of substitutionary atonement, which is a big theological word, but it's a really important one. And we're going to settle in on this concept of substitutionary atonement for a bit. And John realizes that Caiaphas is speaking prophetic truth because John, who's narrating this, verse 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas not only prophesies this, but fittingly, as high priest, the one responsible for making the sacrifice for the people, initiates a plan to put the Lamb of God to death. Isn't that amazing? So look at verse 53. So from that day forward, they made plans to put him to death. And so the prophecy of Caiaphas here, that one man must die for the nation, gets us really into the heart of faith. And, and I want to, like I said, focus on two things about the death of Christ. The death atones, 
and the death attracts. So first I want us to consider how the death atones. How the death atones and is a substitutionary atonement for sin. Look at verses 50 and 51 again. You don't understand, Caiaphas says, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he said this of his own accord, uh, be, but being not of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. This is substitutionary atonement. That Christ's death covers, he steps in and receives the death that we deserve, the punishment of, for sin that we, des, that we deserve. He gives us cover. God's wrath is, is upon us because of our sin, but Christ intervenes and He stands in, He steps in to receive what is ours to receive. He substitutes Himself for us. And this, this is all over the Scriptures, anticipation of this. We saw it all over the book of Genesis, and I want to just refresh us on some of the examples of substitutionary atonement in the book of Genesis. Things that point to the truth of substitutionary atonement. Remember Abraham and his covenant with God, and he has the vision, and there is um, what what was called a blood path ceremony, where animals would be ripped apart, and their blood would would go, they would be create a column, an aisle to walk through, and their blood would pour into the center. And each party in the covenant would walk the blood path. So as to say, if I fail to keep my end of the covenant promises, my destiny is the destiny of these animals. My blood for failure to keep the the promises. But remember, Abraham sees this, but he only sees a smoking pot make its way through the aisle, which represents the very presence. That's God. The, the smoking pot is, is, represents God. Abraham doesn't. God is saying to Abraham, if you keep the commandments, I keep my end of these covenant promises, but even if you don't, I am going to walk the path. I'm going to, my blood for you, substitutionary atonement. Highlighted right there. We see it a few chapters later with, the, with Isaac being sacrificed. Abraham, we all owe God everything. And so Abraham is giving him everything. Isaac, the one on whom the promises rest, all that Abraham has, he's offering up to God. Rightfully so. And what does God do? He provides a ram caught in the thicket, a substitute. The Lord provides. We see, we see it with, uh, with Benjamin Remember, Benjamin is, is, gets into trouble with Joseph, the, the powers of Egypt. Remember what Judah does? Jesus' grandfather, great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Judah. He says, my life for Benjamin. My life for his. Take me, not him. He substitutes himself. And then we just saw it with Lazarus. Jesus came to give Lazarus. Jesus was leaving Jerusalem. And he comes back toward Jerusalem, toward Bethany, to give Lazarus life. But here's what we're finding right here. What giving Lazarus life means that Jesus must die in the substitutionary atonement. That's what it is. So these signs are everywhere. And Caiaphas actually says, he must die for the nation. And hey, add to that, it's the Passover that's at hand. Another example of substitutionary atonement. Where, the, where God, the, the judgment of God is coming through Egypt 
to hit everyone except for those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. God's judgment would pass over those homes. Right? It's, it's just, it's thick, this theme of substitutionary atonement. And here's the beauty of God's love towards you. It doesn't compromise his holiness. It doesn't compromise his righteousness. It is strong, it is secure, and it is built on the foundation of Christ and his precious blood. It's secure. And hey, when I talk about Jesus, I say that Jesus stepped in. It's not as though Jesus was like, stop. The love of the Father and the Son, it's working together for God so loved the world. It's God's love that's driving this substitutionary atonement. And Caiaphas just sort of blithely says, well, let's just kill him. Right? Just blithely willing to, to shed the precious, infinitely precious blood of Christ. Because remember what we just learned in the last with Lazarus? Jesus is resurrection and life. He is the life upon which all other life depends, including Caiaphas. Caiaphas is wanting to put to death the one on, upon whom his life depends. Jesus is the Logos made flesh, the bones of creation, the thing that holds it all together. He's the lifeblood of creation. And he's about to pour out his blood for creation. Christ died for you. He died for me. And this truth is the thing that we, it, it sort of energizes all of our efforts. It's the wind in our spiritual sails. This truth of God's substitutionary atonement. That's the first thing that Caiaphas prophesies. One man must die for the nation. Substitutionary atonement. The second thing I want us to see about this death of Christ is that it attracts. It attracts. It atones and it attracts. So let's look at verse 51 and 52 again. Jesus, he said that, Caiaphas said that Jesus would die for the nation. John actually is commenting on this. And verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean by this? Well, the death of Christ is a cataclysmic event that wreaks havoc upon unseen spiritual worlds. It disarms the powers of darkness. And that, remember, the the natural and the supernatural are tied together. The realities happening in a spiritual realm manifested themselves on earth as darkness fell upon the earth, as the earth shook with a violent earthquake. Okay, so that, remember, the two realms are tied together. So the death of Christ is a cataclysmic event, event that reaches backwards in time, upwards into other realms that we don't know, and also has the power to draw the nations to him. It reaches across the globe. By the power of the Spirit, it extends across the earth and it attracts. It has a magnetic effect. And the prophets of the Old Testament were all over this. That the nations would come to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the Lord. That the nations would find refuge in Christ. It attracts. And that's what Caiaphas is talking about. Now he's talking about the Jews. He, He has in mind most likely the Jews that were scattered in the, in the diaspora, 
right? But it attracts. It attracts the nations, not just the dispersed Jews. So it attracts us to him. But let me, I, I want to focus on this too. The death of Christ also attracts us to stick with Jesus. To stick with Jesus. And I want to, I want to just consider briefly a, a testimony of a Christian that I heard recently. This is a man who came to faith in Christ. He realized that he was um, attracted to the same sex. And before he was a Christian, recognized this and didn't know. Well, this is what he says. He says, I had romantic and sexual feelings for men and not women. And he's, this is several decades ago. And he said at this point in time, he's like, there's no way this is getting out. But he was, he, was, he was late in high school and he was about to figure out college. And so he was excited as he could head off to college and explore this whole, these feelings that he's had. Just kind of explore this. But between high school and college, guess what happens? Christ grabs him. He becomes a Christian. He was invited to a church gathering. And there he heard that the Bible isn't about good people for whom we are to copy, but about bad people to whom God is good. And he says, he says this, I began to realize that faith isn't about God congratulating good people. Here's, here's what he began to understand. He began to understand the substitutionary atonement, atoning death of Christ. He began to understand the death of Christ as atonement, as substitutionary atonement. And, and, and look, look, at, look at what he says. He said, now he grew up in a Christian sort of setting, so he understood the basics of Christianity, that Christ died. And he said, I had always, before, I had always thought of Jesus' death as him saying, hey, I love you, and then running and jumping off a cliff. Like, just like okay. It, didn't, it just didn't make any sense. But now, as, he's, as God's Spirit is working on him, he begins to understand that Christ died for him. And it begins to melt his heart. Listen to what, he's, what he says. I had this youth pastor that said, do you think that Jesus died for you? And I said, I think he died for all of us. And I had this sudden realization that if I had been the only person on the planet, that Jesus would have died for me. That it was personal. He, he began to realize substitutionary atonement. That Jesus substituted himself, atoning for the sin of this man. And he, said, he said, because of that, because I realized that his death was personal for me, I, saw, I thought to myself, this is someone... I want to give the entirety of my life to. I had no idea what discipleship would look like or what Jesus said or called us to, any of those things. I just knew I could trust this man. He's going to do a better job of running my life than I am. And so whatever he wants from me is going to be okay. I just knew that wherever Jesus takes me is going to be the right thing. So when I felt the cost of discipleship began to pinch in various and painful ways, it never felt like a bait and switch, or this is not what I signed up for. I always felt like this is where the good Jesus is leading me. I've not always liked what he said, but I've never felt that he is wrong. It was the death of Jesus that proved to me his goodness. Do you, do you see how the death of Christ 
makes us stick to Jesus? That's what, that's what this man's saying. Because he died for me, even though I may not understand what life is bringing my way, I can trust that to follow where the good Jesus leads. His death attracts us to him. And Paul, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Famous verse. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not give us all things? If he gave us himself, Christ, how much he's going to, everything else is chunk change by comparison. Everything else is yours in Christ. He's good. He can be trusted. If he gave his son the resurrection and the life, the life blood of creation, he's good and we can trust him. It's attractive. In fact, creation is good because it's all tied to him. Tied to him whose glory was the cross. So here's, here's what I want us to consider as we bring this to a close. It is so important for us to filter our understanding of God through the cross. Your experiences, maybe you have, have had a difficult diagnosis, maybe you have a difficult spouse, maybe you don't have a spouse and you, you don't like that, maybe you have difficult children, maybe you have no children. But whatever circumstances or situation you're in, remember, Christ died for you. Follow what did he say? Follow where, where, where the good Jesus leads. Where the good Jesus is leading you. Caiaphas stumbles upon a mystery of the universe. Divine mystery. That God loves us. That he is willing to die for the nation. For the nations. And his love is it's not mushy. It's concrete. It was his atoning death on a cross for the world. And as John says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life in him. And the, 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 the gospel implications from that are manifold. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the truths that Caiaphas spoke. All of creation speaks. Your scriptures speak. We pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts and situate us, integrate us more deeply into uh, Christ's creation, into the world that is yours, into your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.